So I took Linus out on the Natchez. It's the last steam-driven riverboat up and down the Mississippi River. They have a steam calliope, and they, you know, I took Linus back and showed him the steam engine, and I explained, because I, I like steam engines. I like the Rankine's cycle. I like steam engines. What I didn't know was Linus likes steam engines. And so I'm taking him back there, and I'm showing him the Stevenson reverse linkage and explaining all this stuff to him. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So then we, we have dinner. It's a great dinner. And then we're up on the front of the bow of the Natchez. We're going down the river, and we each have a hurricane in our hand. Now, this is a drink made out of rum, lots of different rums, and fruit juices and stuff. And after you've had a couple of them, you feel like Katrina has hit you, okay? And we're staying there with you know, they're in plastic glasses because you can't take glass on a boat. And plastic glasses, and I'm saying, Linus, you know, have you ever given any thought about porting Linux to, like, a 64-bit computer and a, and a RISC processor, you know, something like the Alpha? And he goes, yeah, well, I've thought of that. It'd be very nice. Yes, yes, yes. With me on the show today is Mad Dog. Mad Dog is the board chair of the Linux Professional Institute, and that is a nonprofit that does certification for Linux professionals. Mad Dog, thank you for taking the time to have a chat with me today. That's great to be here. The first time I met you was in 2014 at Linux Fest Northwest. But of course, you've been around in the Linux space for much, much longer than that. But before we get to the Linux, I wanted to kind of roll the clock back a little more and ask when you were when you were younger when you were growing up was science and technology something that you always had an interest in well i kind of did uh when i was growing up my father would get magazines like popular mechanics and popular science and of course those are the days that as they were looking forward we all started flying around with jetpacks and stuff probably about 10 or 15 years ago and um you know so i always read that and that was all great uh, when I went through school, uh, we, we went to a very, I had a very good schooling in grade school and we had, but we had things like shop classes and I took printing and I took woodworking and metalworking, but eventually I ended up in electronics for three years in high school. And we got to the point where we would design radios and TVs. Well, basically radios didn't quite get the TV thing transmitters, receivers and stuff using tubes. And the parts were so expensive that we would take apart old systems and sort them out and then put them, you know, design the, the receivers and stuff around the parts that we had. Uh, so, but it was great. And that got me interested in electrical engineering. And then I went on to Drexel to study electrical engineering. So what what drew you to Drexel specifically? Was there anything in particular that stood out to you? Well, at the time, not really. Uh, you know, I applied to a number of schools. I applied to the University of Maryland and stuff like that. But I, when I applied to Drexel, uh, not only did they accept me, that was a great thing. But uh, it was you know for a private school back in those days, it was relatively reasonably priced. And... Um, I, I liked it. It was an engineering school. They did have a college of business administration. They had a library science college. 
But it was in Philadelphia and, you know, it was a different city and everything. And they, I think most of all, it had a cooperative education program. So you would go to school for, you know, the whole first year, the nine months, and then you would break off into two groups and one group would go summer, fall to school and then winter, spring to be working. And the other would do summer, fall working and then go to school, winter, spring. And then back in the senior year, you all came back together again. So it took five years to get an education, but at the same time, you ended up with a year and a half of experience along with the education. And it was, it was actually that experience that convinced me I really didn't want to be an electrical engineer for a number of, a number of reasons. Number one, uh, electrical engineers back in those days weren't as specialized as they are today. You did everything from big power to tube radios and things like that. The transistor wasn't really quite there. And, um, and so, you know, you had this wide range of stuff you were studying, which was cool. I like that. But I also didn't do that well in the math of analog electronics. You know, Fourier analysis, Laplace transforms, differential equations. I always seem to be following like one term after what I should have known. Right. So I understood calculus two. Well, I understood calculus one when I was taking calculus two. And I understood calculus two when I was calculus three, right? And so forth and so on. And it it, you know, and of course, all of the courses used the calculus that you were taking at that time. So if you were taking physics, you needed calculus two right. in order to understand it. And this caused my whole entire grades, you know, to, to really go poorly. But during my first co-op job at the West Electric Company in Baltimore, they were the manufacturing arm of the Bell Telephone System. I took a correspondence course in how to program the IBM 1130 in Fortran. Okay. Now, this wasn't Fortran 2 or Fortran 4, or Fortran 77, or High Performance Fortran, or Fortran 90, or any of those. This was Fortran, all capital letters, thank you. And it was used punching cards. So I had even taken a personal use typing class in the summer term, in the summer course after I graduated from high school. I took a personal use typing course because I knew I was going to have to type in university. But I never in my wildest dreams knew that I would be typing for about 80% of my life after that, right? This was just something that it was nice to have because of course you would use your script to write out everything else. And um, so I, you know, I, I could touch type and I was punching these cards and putting them in the little IBM 1130. And I started to write programs that were significant that could do regression analysis, you know, regression analysis on statistics. And the people that were there said, hey, you know, at, at Western Electric said, you know, you're much better at programming than you are doing this electronic, electronic stuff. I go, why? Okay, okay. So I switched curriculums in mid-stride at Drexel, and my grade point average went from a 1.76 out of 4 to a 3.8 out of 4, and never sank below 3.8 in the entire rest of the time. And it, it amazed everybody, including myself, that in my last year at Drexel, I graduated um, cum laude, right? Okay. So that was that was my choice of Drexel. I've never regretted it. It's always, you know, it's been a good school. But, you know, 
after you've been out for like a year or two, nobody asks what schools you go to. Nobody asks what grades you got. They only want to see what you did. So, okay. I programmed, I programmed at Fortran. Mm-hmm. And, and then when I went back to school, even though I was, you know, in those days you didn't have a computer science degree. In fact, we didn't have computer science. We only had computer black magic. Okay. And so back at school, it was very hard to get courses. My degree was actually called commerce and engineering, half engineering and half business. And I'd already had all the engineering courses. So I was taking business courses and a couple of programming courses. And so I found that the electrical engineering lab had a PDP-8 computer from that, from this company called Digital Equipment Corporation. And I said, oh, that's cool. And this was a computer that it only had 4,000 12-bit words of memory. And so if you had a three-pass assembler, you had to you had to pass your source code on paper tape through the assembler three times to, to print out your binary tape, which you would then load in afterwards. And, but I loved it. And I, and I read a book on how to program an assembly language. I learned how to program the machine in assembly language. Nobody told me this was hard. Nobody said, oh, assembly language is hard. No, no you read the book, you practiced. That's how you learned it, right? Right. So I wrote all these programs and stuff like that. And they also had a Link 8 computer. So I actually got to play Star uh, Star Wars, or space, no, space Wars. That was the... the, the the magical program that Ken Thompson wanted to do on Unix. I got to play that on the link on the link gate computer. And, you know, I just fell in love with programming computers. And so when I graduated, I graduated with this degree, commerce and engineering. And then I started looking around for a job and people want me to program in COBOL. I'm not really interested. I want to program in assembly language. And they go, no, no, no. <laughs> And she said, you, you program in Fortran. I says, oh, I like Fortran, but I, you know, I really would have programmed an assembly language. So finally I had this interview with this one company that I'd never heard of before. No, they required me to drive up there. I interviewed with them and they said, oh, you program in assembly language? I says, yeah, for the PDPA. I says, how did you learn that? Well, I read a book. Just the same way that I learned how to program in Fortran, right? I learned, I read a book. I didn't have a course. I read a book. Oh, do you think you could program an IBM assembler language? I don't know. Do you have a book? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, well, okay. Well, you know, we want you to come up for another interview up to this place in Hartford, Connecticut. And so they arranged for me to fly up to Hartford, Connecticut and stay in this hotel. And I started walking up the street and I have this address in front of me. And I'm walking up the street. And I see this tiny little red brick building and it says Aetna Life and Casualty. And I'm looking at it, it's, it's like three stories tall, maybe 40 feet wide, made out of brick with some people inside. And I go, oh, I've come all this way to work for this tiny little stinking company. And then I look at the address again and it's different. And I unfocus off the little building and focus on the building behind it, which is two city blocks long and six stories tall with a, with a cupola that goes up another three stories because that's at the Life and Casualty, the largest multi-line insurance company in the world. And at that time, 
the largest commercial user of IBM equipment in the free world. They automatically ordered everything, two of everything that IBM announced. No salesperson had to call. As soon as IBM announced it, Aetna had an order in for two. Those are the customers IBM loves. <laughs> oh, we were. And we would, we would write new device drivers for IBM's operating systems and stuff because back in those days, IBM distributed the source code for all of their, oper all of their operating systems, you know, uh, in source code. Because who in God's name could ever create a system that would be hardware compatible with an IBM, you know, and who, and who could take that operating system and make it fit on their computer? So why did you need to protect it? Because what you were really selling was the hardware, of course. When you mentioned the co-op program at Drexel, I've had a few friends that have gone to Drexel and they have all spoken incredibly highly of that program. Because as you said, you know, when you get out of college, after you get that first job, it's not where did you go to college, it's what have you done. Right. But being able to have and gain that experience in college helps you get a better first job. So then when you're going on from there and someone's looking at your resume and they say, oh, well, this is where he had his first job out of college. Okay, this this person must be skilled. Um, I've always heard great things about the way Drexel does that program. There was another, a, a lot of unique things about Drexel. I don't know if they still do them, but back in those days, you could not flunk out of Drexel in your first year. I mean, you could have gotten a 0, 0.00 grade point average, you know, but at the end of the first year, they would say, well, you didn't do so good. You got to do it better next year because if you continue this, you're gone. But, you know, it gave you a chance to get used to the difference between university and high school. You know, in high school, if it doesn't come out of the teacher's mouth, it's not on the test. You don't have to open up the book because, hey, you know. But in university, at least Drexel, it was, oh, I'm just a guide. This is a professor speaking. I'm just a guide. Okay. And, you know, here's the curriculum. There's the book. There's the library. There's, you know, there's other people you can talk to. There's interviews you have to do with stuff. Right. And and there's the, there's the resuscitation teacher. You know, I have office hours now. Goodbye. And they would go, oh, and you're all sitting around looking at each other, right? Oh, the one other thing, look to the left and look to the right of you. At the And when you graduate, those two people are not going to be there. And that was right, too. Drexel started off with a thousand electrical engineers and they, you know, they all passed their entrance exams and stuff. And they graduated 300. Now, when you were talking about uh, working at Aetna and how IBM gave you guys the source. It reminded me because one of the questions I asked at uh, Linux Fest Northwest when I met you was now in, in retrospect, I realized it was a dumb question, but I didn't know at the time what I asked you, you know, what was your first exposure to open source? And you kind of gave me a slight chuckle and then kindly informed me that that's the way it always used to be. That right. You had to have the source. There, there wasn't binary packages that you could install. You had to have the source to be able to build what you wanted for the machine that you were, you were using at the time that that started to transition, which would have been later into kind of the you get the binaries and not the source. Do you remember discussions with colleagues about that change and how you all kind of felt about it? Well, part of that was the fact that I was never in that situation where I had to deal with really with binaries. Like I said, I always got the source code. Okay. I mean, it's not to say that there weren't companies at those in those days that sold binary only products. 
However, Aetna was so big and so powerful that we simply said something along these lines. Oh, you want to sell us your product? You are going to give us a source code, right? I mean, maybe the source code will go into escrow at some attorney's office or something like that, but we are going to have that source code in case you, little company, go bankrupt and disappear. Um, so that was that was one thing. And the other thing was that there was simply such a small, relatively small number of computers by today's standards. And if you take the fact that most uh, most applications are lucky to get a two to three percent uh, penetration rate into computers, and the computers were all different, there wasn't any Intel, AMD instruction set compatibility. So this naturally meant that you had a relatively small number of customers buying your product. So it was, you know, it was just a different time. But the other thing that was kind of different was the fact that people didn't typically write programs for somebody else. They wrote programs for themselves. And so if you were a programmer, it's because you were a physicist and you needed a computer to solve your problems. You were a chemist and you needed a computer to solve your problems. And then once you had written the program, you're sitting there looking and saying, what am I going to do with this? Because selling software is hard, right? You have to, you have to answer bugs. You have to think about what the customers want as new, new fixes. You need to advertise all this type of stuff. You need to distribute. You need to be able to take returns, all this type of stuff. And that's not what these people were. They were physicists and they were chemists and stuff like that. And I had a professor at Drexel who taught Fortran. Uh, Don McGinnis was his name. He was actually famous in the, or relatively famous in the Fortran area. And he looked at me one day and said, John, you're never going to be able to make a living as a professional programmer. And I'm still waiting to find out if he was right. You know, I'm <laughs> 70 now. It could be I, I go bankrupt next year. I don't know. But, uh, you know, he didn't think it was it was possible to write programs for other people and sell them and make enough money to survive. So now also back in those days with, uh, with the fact that the hardware was so customized, obviously, they also came along with their own operating system. And these days, we kind of realize how much of a revolution Unix was and that you could have an OS that could run on multiple architectures and multiple systems. Was Ken Thompson's and Dennis Ritchie's original work on Unix, was it recognized at the time for being the breakthrough that it was? Or were people just kind of looking at it sideways going, well, that's interesting and peculiar? So a couple things there. Um, for a long time, the computer didn't have an operating system. The PDP-8 didn't really have an operating system. I mean, there were there was a a there was a, a model of the PDP-8 that you could stack multiple banks of memory on, and then you ran a little executive at the bottom and switch between them and stuff like that. But most computers only ran one program at a time. You didn't link your device drivers into the operating system. You linked your device drivers into the program, and then you kind of like booted the program and ran that. And that's why a lot of the computers had lights and switches on the front of them in the early days, because you would actually control the program that you were running by flipping those switches and looking at the lights and seeing what they were doing, because you only had one program in there at a time. Lights and switches kind of lose their meaning if you're running 40,000 tasks at a time. Right. So 
That was the first thing that a lot of computers didn't have an operating system. And then when they started, even mainframe computers, the operating system was extremely simple. I mean, the first one I worked on for the IBM was MFT, multiple fixed tasks. You could have up to 16 fixed tasks in your system that were fixed in size. And you had you would typically break your memory up into different size sections, and you would run each program in if it was a section that was at least as large as what you needed. Um, then there was multiple variable tasks. So you could have a variable size task, but this had the problem of leaving holes in memory sometimes that you couldn't fill. Then there was uh, VS1, then you went to virtual systems, and this started to get interesting, right? And eventually MVS. So, you know, operating systems were still very tightly tied to the hardware, as you said. Now with Unix, what happened there, I mean, most people know that the history of Unix. Uh, Ken Thompson was working on Multics. He got taken off of that project because AT&T was afraid they'd be thought of as a monopoly working on operating systems. And of course, we know that's fictitious. Nobody, nobody in Congress could understand why the telephone company that was involved with telephony would ever want to do computers. They just could not understand that, okay? That was very frustrating for me. But in any case, so he got taken off of Multics, went back to Murray Hill, and he was, I mean, he's doing pure research, right? Pure research. This is research in, of, a, of a type where you say, okay, you're interested in lasers. Can you make this jello laser? Oh, that's cool. Maybe if you can make the jello laser, you can make anything laser. And all of a sudden, we have these semiconductor cat toys, right? <laughs> so that's, you know, that was, that was the type of atmosphere they were in. And Ken says, hey, there's this PDP-7 sitting out in the hallway unused. Can I use this to write my own little operating system so I can play Space Wars? And he got Dennis to come along with him. And of course, the first version of that was written in machine assembly language. And it wasn't written on the PDP-7. It was written on another computer with a cross assembler because the PDP-7 was too weak and miserable to be able to have an assembler. So they would create the binary over there, the tape, and they would bring it over and they would boot it on the PDP-7 and watch it run. And after a while, that kind of ran out of steam. So they, 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 managed to finagle a PDP-11, but then they had to port their fledgling little operating system to the system that had a completely different architecture, complete, no, it wasn't a word machine, it was a, you know, byte machine, 16 bits, and they had to rewrite the whole thing over again in assembler. And about this time, Dennis started saying, this is a lot of work. <laughs> You know, I'm going to take this language that Ken wrote called B. I'm going to add some stuff to it to make it a little bit more structured. And it comes C, and we'll rewrite the whole thing in C. And they rewrite the whole kernel in C, and they say, oh, thank goodness, it's the last time we have to do that. And somebody raised their hands and said, hey, can you point it to the inner data 832? That'd be nice. Oh, my God. We have to write the, write the whole thing again. Oh. Oh, maybe what we can do is separate out the parts that are the same in every operating system 
and keep the parts that are different kind of isolated off here. So those are the only parts we really have to rewrite. And that's where it started to become portable. Now that's one level of portability. That's the portability of the operating system to different pieces of hardware. But there was actually another and more important piece of portability. And that's the portability of humans. You know, up until that time, if you wanted to work on a different operating system, well, you learned all the different commands, all the different stuff, you, you know, everything was different. And so humans were not very portable between different machines. But by porting this one operating system across all these different platforms, they made humans much more portable. And that was actually much more important than the operating system itself being portable. And this was actually begun to really be shown by Richard Stallman when he started the GNU program. And he said, well, I want to make, you know, a portable, I want to make an open source Unix. But the way he did it, by starting off with Emacs first, and then, you know, all these other things, and then a suite of compilers, and all this other stuff, he began to build a portability environment that went across operating systems like VMS, and CPCMS from IBM, and so forth and so on. So that people who were programmers didn't have to learn a different text editor and a different set of compilers and so forth and so on. So all this portability stuff came to, came, kind of came together. But I don't think that anybody really thought of it that way. It was kind of like the afterthought of it came out that people started to say, hey, you know, this is really kind of cool. The other thing which I think played into this was that computers were so miserably weak and crappy back in those days that people didn't want to spend, they want everything to be completely and totally optimized. But I do remember the time when people started to say, hey, you need a faster computer? Well, just buy a faster chip, you know, but get some more memory, you know, so forth and so on. Because the price of computing was going down and the price of humans were going, was going up. And so people began to realize that there's now this trade-off between computing, the hardware, and humans, the users, that it isn't always, let's make the humans suffer by making them learn something different. Let's figure out how to get the computer to do something faster. Now, around that time, which uh, I believe Stallman was working on the GNU user land in the in the 80s, because mm -hmm. I believe he started the Free Software Foundation in 80, I think it was 85. But prior to that, of course, you had AT&T Unix and you had a whole bunch of other variants that were kind of starting to crop up. And the big one, of course, was Berkeley. And if if memory serves, Berkeley had TCP IP and AT&T's did not. And that would have been also around the time of ARPANET. Do you think, I mean, aside from the exorbitant cost of getting a license from AT&T, do you think that the inclusion of TCP IP helped drive interest and adoption to the Berkeley code? Well, it's, it's actually not do I think. I know. Okay. Okay. Because at that time, it was 1983, that I went to Digital Equipment Corporation from Bell Laboratories to help Digital make their first Unix system. And we were trying to decide whether we should be using System 5 or whether we should be using Berkeley. 
And System 5 had UUCP as a networking thing. Uh, they, had, um, they had Fortran and C as languages, but they also were only a swapping system. They did not have demand page virtual memory. And Berkeley had all three. They had C, Fortran, Pascal. They also had TCP IP, and they had demand page virtual memory. And I knew, I mean, I had taught operating systems a few years before at Hartford State Tech, and I knew the benefits of demand page virtual memory over a pure swapping system. And so that was one of the reasons that I voted for Berkeley, even though I did know one thing, that Berkeley didn't have the money to put a two-page spread inside of Computer World magazine every week that says, you know, buy Berkeley. No, they didn't do that, but AT&T did. Uh, but it was it was that it was TCP/IP. I mean, so if you may remember that Wollongong, for a long time, created a Wollongong inter, uh, TCP/IP package that fit onto systems like VMS, uh, HPUX, and other you know systems that were not based on Berkeley. Okay, and and so that allowed all these systems to go together. I mean. DEC had DECnet, which was a very, very good system, very good networking system. Uh, it handled a huge network that digital had, I think, you know, 57,000 nodes at the time, which was huge compared to uh, what a lot of people were doing. But it was just overwhelmed by TCP IP. And so we chose the, the Berkeley to be the core of our system. IBM chose System 5. Um, HP chose Berkeley. Sun, of course, chose Berkeley with Sun OS. Uh, later on, they switched over because they joined a, uh, a thing with uh, AT&T and uh, Sun became Unix Systems Labs. And they, as part of that agreement, they agreed to use the System 5 code. <laughs> and then when the Sun engineers looked at the System 5 code, and realized that basically it was only sample code. That was why the first release of Solaris was called Slowlaris, because it was, you know, it didn't have all the optimizations that the Sun engineers have worked so hard on to make Berkeley Unix be very fast on, on Sun's hardware. And they had to re-implement that stuff all over again. So yeah, it was. TCP IP, and, but it was also demand page virtual memory. It was very important. Okay. I remember hearing people make the joke about Solaris, uh, slow Laris. And like, I, I knew that from hearing, talking to people that, yeah, it was, it was not as performant, but I never understood the, the background. That's actually, that's actually really interesting. And that then of course, talking about the, the Unix system labs and Berkeley then leads to the lawsuit that happened. Now, Linus made his original first kind of post about Linux in 91. And then, you know, the, the AT&T lawsuit kicked off. That was settled in February of 94. I actually looked it up before, before we got on the call because I wanted to verify. And three months after that, the Linux kernel V1 came out. Now, even though the lawsuit was behind at that point, how much impact do you think Linux got of interest and adoption just because that lawsuit had been hanging in people's minds for several years. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think there was a lot of that. Um, so you know, we have to go into the lawsuit a little closer. Okay. 
the lawsuit, the lawsuit wasn't against the University of California, Berkeley. It was against this little company called BSDI. And BSDI had the audacity to try and take the Berkeley code and put it out as a system and not pay the AT&T royalty. And, um, and they were putting it out, you know, binary and source code for like a hundred bucks. Right. And that was, that was, so of course, AT&T sued them because, okay. I mean, their arguments literally was code inside of the Berkeley code at that time. So, you know, so Berkeley, of course, even though they weren't named in the lawsuit, was very upset about this because they knew that a huge amount of the code had been written by them. That, yeah, there might be some lines of, you know, AT&T code still in there, but the vast bulk of it was from Berkeley. So there were a couple of people there at the BSD software project that said, well, okay, as they identify what these pieces of code is, we're going to scrub them. And they went through scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing. And so by the time 1994 comes around, they said, all right, you know, in the lawsuit, there's 17 files that we think have AT&T code in. And the guy said, oh, yeah, 17? Tell us what they are. <laughs> and they rewrote those and created BSD Lite, which then the different BSD groups used as a basis of their distributions. But that was after, slightly after 1994, because these guys were all following this, of course. Right. So, but you have to remember, Linus actually started his project in 1991. 1994 was only when version 1.0 of the kernel came out, and people had actually been using Linux before that. And there was another reason why Linux took off. Okay. This may upset, and I don't mean this to upset anybody, but this is just the way I feel. And you know, and I, I went to Usenix. I was on the Usenix board. I love, uh, you know, Marshall Kirkpatrick is probably one of very good friend of mine, and and Eric Allman, the creator of SendMail, very good friend of mine. I love these guys very much, but the BSD symbol was a demon, and the people that 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 did BSD with typically big black beards, long stringy hair, you know. I mean, there was a state at one time that said you couldn't be a Unix person unless you had a beard, which was very insulting to all the women programmers I knew and women systems administrators and Evie Nemeth and, you know, all those people. But that was the image, right? And, you know, but here comes along this guy, this person with this European from Finland, of all awful places. I mean, why would why would any technology come out of Finland? Never mind Nokia. Just ignore Nokia. <laughs> okay. You know. But out of Finland, this university student, 21 years old, who speaks perfect English with this lilting European accent, and he wears these wire rim glasses and sandy brown hair. He's very polite and stuff. He wears sandals with socks on them. He is the type of guy that you'd want your daughter to get married to. And he was, and 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 the, the press fell in love with him. They they it was and it became Linux, not GNU Linux, because there's this guy in Boston who generated all this code and made all this really possible. 
And he had this big black beard and long stringy hair and stuff like that. So you can ignore him, okay? And there was Linux, and he appeared on the cover of Fortune magazine with daisies and stuff like this. And it was a very inclusive environment. People said, yeah, come on in, you know? Yeah, you come on in. And it, it just, you know, it was just, which, which all of a sudden I really began to realize at that point, it's marketing. You know, it's all marketing. I mean, don't talk about technology, you know, it's marketing. And that's, I mean, if, if technology was what sells operating systems, Microsoft would still be waiting to sell their first copy. So that's why, that's why Linux took off. And the, the BSD people got so mad at me because they kept saying, hey, you know, why don't you give as much, you know, I saw a deck, why don't you give as much help to, to, to BSD as you do to Linux? I says, look, go to, a, go to a bookstore, look at the magazine rack. How many magazines are on there that say Linux or GNU Linux? How many magazines say BSD? None. You show how many Unix, how many Linux users groups do you have? Having meetings every week and stuff like that, setting up mailing lists, having conferences. How many BSD ones? Show me even one. If you could show me one of any of those, then I'll give you as much help as I'm giving Linux. But I'm tired of swimming up the waterfall. And maybe your TCP IP stack is better than Linux. But it will get better. Linux's TCP IP stack will get better over time. So, if if memory serves, um, you actually you were at Bell Labs before moving to to Deck. Mm -hmm. Was there something about the culture of Deck that attracted you away from Bell Labs? Yeah, in spades. I found out that see, in order to be employed by Bell Labs, you had to have at least a master's degree. Uh, you could be employed as a technical assistant or something like that with only an associate's degree. But to be a member of technical staff or a member of administrative group, which is what I was, I was a systems administrator, you had to have a master's degree. So I had four TAs working for me, guys who had associate's degrees, you know, in computers, they were pretty smart. And one day one of them comes to me and says, hey, Mad Dog, I have this uh, I had this idea. Oh, tell it to me. Tells me the idea. I says, that's a great idea. You should go tell our boss. Because I didn't want to take credit for it. I wanted him to get credit for it. He says, no, that won't work. I says, why not? Because I don't have a master's degree. He won't listen to me. I says, that's crazy. He says, I know, but it's the truth. Now, this is Bell Labs. So, of course, we have to do an experiment. <laughs> So he and I go to my boss. He tells my boss his idea. My boss says, no, it's the worst idea I've ever had. It'll never work. We go away for two weeks. We go back. He's standing there. I'm here. I tell the boss the idea with the same words. And the boss says, best idea I've ever heard. That's the greatest thing I've ever heard. Let's do it immediately. I went back to my office. I talked with the other three TAs, and they all, they all agreed. That was the way it was. And there were a couple other things that Bell Labs did that really disturbed me. And so I was sitting in my office sulking about this when my digital salesperson came in, asked me why I was upset, and I told him. He says, hey, come to digital. You know, we're starting our own Unix group. You know, come to digital, because nobody cares where you got your degree. 
They only care about your ideas and how well you work. Now, I'd worked enough with digital at that point. We had all PDP-11s and faxes at Bell Labs that I was running Unix on. I'd gone to DECAS meetings and stuff. I'd use, like I said, I used deck equipment back at university. I used deck equipment when I was teaching at Harvard State Technical College. And I had actually interviewed with DEC when I graduated from university, but I made a mistake in interviewing because I told them I wanted to work at headquarters programming an assembly language when they wanted me to work at their Maryland office, right, you know, for the federal government. And in retrospect, if I had accepted that job, I probably would have transferred within a year or two to the home office. But I was, you know, fresh, green, between, green behind the ears and didn't think about that. So this is my chance to work for this company. I really respect it. And I went to work for DEC and worked there for 16 years. Now, how receptive was DEC when Linux came into the picture? Because I know that, that you have made statements about how you really, really, really wanted to get Linus a 64-bit system to work on. Well, it didn't start out like that. Uh, it was November of 1993 when I saw this article in Dr. Dobbs magazine, uh, Running Light Without Overbite. And uh, it was an advertisement actually on the back page and it said, buy a Unix system complete with source code for $100. Now, of course, I knew all about the AT&T little thing and stuff going on. I said, oh, how are they doing this? So I bought it, it came in the mail, but I didn't have a PC to run it on. Okay, I had faxes, I had alphas, I had MIPS machines, but I had no Intel PC. So I mounted the CD on my Ultrix system, looked at the man pages, said, this looks kind of interesting and put it all away. And then about March of 1994, uh, this guy named Kurt Riesler, who was the chair of the, of the special interest group for Unix at DECAS, said, hey, I'm trying to get this guy from Europe. He's working on this project you've never heard of. And I want to bring him to DECAS in New Orleans in May, but I don't have the money for it. And I've been watching and Kurt been sending out all these emails to all these different little companies asking them for contributions. And they all said, no, we're too small, but we can send you some CDs to hand out. And so I went to my boss and said, I don't know who this guy is or what he did, but Kurt sometimes has good ideas. I think we should fund this. And so my boss went to his boss and said, we don't know who this guy is. We don't know what he did. We don't know who Kurt is, but Mad Dog sometimes has good ideas. I think we should fund this. So we got about $5,000, flew this guy down to DECAS. He uh, had two talks accepted at DECAS. And then Kurt asked me the really horrible thing. He asked me to get him an Intel PC to run this software on. And I said, Kurt, I don't sell Intel PCs. I sell real computers, VAXs, MIPS workstations, Alpha workstations. I don't sell Intel PCs. Please, please. Okay. So I got him in Dell PC. I fly down there. I find Kurt. He's trying to install this software onto the system and not having very good luck. And along comes this nice young man with sandy brown hair and wire rim glasses, wearing wool socks and sandals, and says, in a lilting 
European accent. Can I help you? And Kirk looks at him and says, yes, I think you can. And about 10 minutes later, Linux is running on that PC. This was the first time that Linus had ever installed Linux using a CD-ROM. Because the way he installed Linux was he would build Linux on a second disk, and then he would boot that disk and install it on the first one. Right. He, he, he didn't even have a CD-ROM drive. He didn't have a tape drive to do backups either. So, you know, I, they, they invited me to sit down and use it. And the interesting thing was, if I thought of it like System 5, it felt like System 5. And if I thought of it like Berkeley, it felt like Berkeley. And in any case, it was really, really responsive, even on this weak, miserable, crappy Intel PC. And so I went to the two talks that Linus gave. He was very nervous about giving each one, but he did fine. He had about 40 people, 40 people show up at each one. And a lot of them were the same people who went to both talks. Mm -hmm. Imagine if he was giving a talk today how many people would show up? I mean, we had 19,000 people at that Decus in Atlanta, in New Orleans. So I listened to the talks and I started thinking, you know, when you bring out a new system, new architecture, new operating system, you don't have many applications for it. And so we were having trouble selling alpha systems to people because we didn't have, you know, we great operating system, but we didn't have a lot of applications for it. Likewise, when you want to do research in very large address spaces, you really need to have an operating system that you can supply the source code for, that you can share the, the source code to really take advantage of this. And so I thought to myself, what if we had Linux working on the alpha? Number one, it would make Linux more portable. That's a good thing. And number two, it would be a 64-bit version of Linux. Now, a lot of people don't really think about what that really means. Because, of course, with a 32-bit system, you could have a 4-gigabyte address space. You could hold 60, you know, 4 gigabytes of data at one time in your virtual address space. But when you need that extra byte, that last, you know, that next byte, now you have to do what you call edge programming. You know, you, you have this one image and then you have to somehow store some variables and stuff because you're going to start doing the processing over there in the next virtual address space. And I said, well, what happens if you were had 64 bits of address space? Not just 4 billion, but 4 billion times 4 billion. How big is that? That's 128 bytes of data for every square millimeter on the surface of the Earth, including all the oceans. That's a lot of data. And I was trying to get professors, university professors, to think about this so that they could you know, help me publicize this as an advantage of the alpha hardware. But it was hard because they didn't have an operating system that they could just publish the source code for. And so I took Linus out on the Natchez. It's the last steam-driven riverboat up and down the Mississippi River. They have a steam calliope and they, you know, I took Linus back and showed him 
the steam engine and I explain because I, I like steam engines. I like the Rankine cycle. I like steam engines. What I didn't know was Linus likes steam engines. And so I'm taking him back there and I'm showing him the Stevenson reverse linkage and explaining all this stuff to him. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So then we, we have dinner. It's a great dinner. And then we're up on the front of the bow of the Natchez. We're going down the river and we each have a hurricane in our hand. Now, this is a drink made out of rum, lots of different rums, and fruit juices and stuff. And after you've had a couple of them, you feel like Katrina has hit you, okay? And we're staying there with you know, plastic glasses because you can't take glass on a boat. And plastic glasses, and I'm saying, Linus, you know, have you ever given any thought about porting Linux to like a 64-bit computer and a, and a RISC processor, you know, something like the Alpha? And he goes, yeah, well, I've thought of that. It'd be very nice. Yes, yes, yes. He says, but I've been trying to get an alpha out of the deck people in Helsinki, and they've been having problems doing that. They'd like to do it, but they've been having problems doing that. And so I may have to do the IBM PowerPC instead. Ah! And I dropped my hurricane on the deck. I said, don't do anything rash. And I go back to my office. The next day, I fly back to deck in Nashua, New Hampshire. Now, a lot of your listeners will think that the way companies create products is they ask a lot of questions to customers, the customers tell them what they want, you know, da, 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 da. they make a plans and stuff like this. That's not how you get stuff done. You pull in favors. You have done people favors, and now I have to give you favors. And I had been at deck for 16 years, well, actually 14 years at that point, 14 years, and a lot of people owed me favors. And so I called up this guy named Jim Jackson, and he was in charge of the alpha hardware seed units at this time because we still hadn't made enough alphas to really have, you know, the engineers didn't have enough alphas. They had to go into the laboratories and put on earmuffs to do their work. And I said, Jim, I need you. I don't have time to tell you what this is or who this person is or anything like that. I just need to have an alpha system sent to Helsinki, Finland as quickly as possible. What can you do for me? Now, remember, alphas back in those days were not a $400 laptop. They were not, they were not, you know, this was a, this, this was an alpha system. It had an ESA bus in it, it had a diamond graphics card in it. It had 96 megabytes of main memory, not gigabytes, megabytes of main memory. It had a 4X CD-ROM reader. It had, I forget how big the disk drive was. It was probably like a gigabyte or something. And a keyboard and a 21-inch color monitor, heavy as heck, right, CRT. And, you know, and I says, uh, and Jim is telling me about all the stuff this thing has. I says, oh, this is great. I says, um, if you throw in a four millimeter tape drive so we can do a backup, then you have a deal. The four millimeter tape drive alone was $4,000. And this whole system cost about $32,000, And Jim is sending to this guy in Helsinki, Finland, he's never heard of, for a project he's never heard of, right? Just on my request. He says, he's laughing. He says, what are you going to pay for? 
I says, I'll pay for the shipping. <laughs> and the next day, that system was headed towards Helsinki, Finland. Now, the problem was Linus had to solve, had to sign a lunar products form. Because until he had signed this little form that said, okay, I'll take care of this system and everything, I realized it's decks and all this stuff, you know, we couldn't give it to him. The system would show up in the Helsinki office of digital and they'd be happy about it, but they couldn't give it to Linus without the loan of products form. So fortunately, and this is where fortune comes into this, right? It's like the, the hand of fortune comes into things. You know, fortunately, Linus is coming to a USDIX meeting in Boston in June of that year. So May, I met him. The system was started on its way. June, he's coming to this U6 meeting. I meet him in Boston with the form. And as he's eating a hot dog with ketchup on it, he's signing this form. He gets ketchup on the form. That's okay. I wipe it off. And he signs the form. And he says to me, am I ever going to have to give this back? I says, Linus, I've been at deck for 12 years. I've never seen a single Luna Products thing come back. Okay. just it, For all intents and purposes, it's yours. Okay. So then when he goes back, the deck office in Helsinki can give him this unit. There is one slight problem, one tiny little mistake. We made the mistake of giving this system to Linus. If Digital in Helsinki had kept it and only loaned it to him on a real loan, they wouldn't have had to pay the $15,000 import tax that they had to pay, which they did. And they weren't happy about the tax, but they were happy that he got the system. So, and so was digital happy about my thing with Linux? Yes and no. You have to understand that there were various parts of digital. There was the product group of digital Unix. There was the product group of alphas. There was a product you uh, and alpha systems, I should say, alpha workstations, alpha server systems. Then there was a product group of digital semiconductor that actually made the alpha chip. And Digital Semiconductor had their own engineering team, and they were also looking at different operating systems to put onto the alpha. And they, independent of everything I had done, had selected Linux as a system they were gonna work on. But they wanted a 32-bit port, because they thought that all of the software would have to be ported to 64 bits, and that was too much work. But if they made a 32-bit system, it could be used right away. I said, no, that's not true. And they go, well, why not? I says, because all of the software, all the GNU software has already been ported to 64-bit because it works on digital Unix. And so I know that all the software that you are worried about, the, op the database systems and stuff like that, it already works. It only has to be recompiled and maybe a few bugs fixed, but it's, it's, not a, it's not a significant issue. And they tried that out and they agreed with that and they put away their project and they went in to help Linus doing some of the low level stuff that needed to be done, like writing the Milo bootloader. And that's basically how it did. As far as my own group, Digital Unix, they didn't understand what I was doing, but they were too terrified of Maybe I was doing something right to say anything about it. And I actually heard uh, a manager out in the hallway when an, another one of my group said to him, what do you think about this thing with Linux? He says, I don't know, but I'm not, I'm not willing to take the risk 
of trying to stop him. So that that brings up an interesting question because when I look back at you know the, the 90s and earlier than that, there was a flurry of development both in software and in hardware. I mean, the hardware side, you had multiple architectures. You had x86, you had MIPS, you had Spark, you had Alpha, you had PA Risk, you had Power. On the software side, you had tons of various Unixes. You had Xenix, uh, Minix, Altrix, SunOS, mm -hmm. Coherent, AIX, HPUX. I mean, even Sony was working on one. Mm -hmm. And then you had non-Unixes. You had OS2, you had NextStep, BOS, Amiga. There was so much diversity and research and engineering that was going on in those days. And we don't see anything like that nowadays. Oh, Is it just the nature of development? that, Or was there something unique about that time for why there was so many parallel <sighs> things being worked on? So this is a very good question, actually. And I'd like to I like to, to put down an urban legend, which unfortunately, and sometimes this even gets into politics. The urban legend goes along these lines, that these computer manufacturers were inventing their own operating systems with their own interfaces to lock people onto their platforms. Now, in all the years I was in an engineering group, I never heard even one time that be some type of, of reason for, for doing something, right? The reason was always, this will make our system more efficient. This will make it faster. This will make it better. And I submit to you that if locking your customers into your hardware and system was the goal, then digital would not have needed 11 different operating systems on their PDP-11 line of computers. They could have done with just one, RSX-11. But instead, they had Vistas, IAS, they had RT-11, they had RSX-11, they had Unix, they had, you know, Mumps, and IAS, all these different operating systems because they were creating different interfaces to fit the different needs of the applications and to make those applications run efficiently on those systems. And again, one of the places that Unix kind of broke this was to say, number one, let's move that functionality outside of the kernel, right? Let's have a general purpose kernel that does specific things. Get me a block of data from the disk, you know, get me some memory, you know, schedule a process, schedule a thread, da 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 da. Mm -hmm. And then above that, you have libraries that give all this different functionality that can be used by these different types of processes. And so, you know, the, the, the research is still going on. I mean, there's still things that are coming out, but people are now adapting the libraries and that type of functionality to these new needs that the kernel itself is pretty good, actually. Um, you can make an argument that Linux is not, you know, the, the, the generic GNU Linux we have is not as good for real time. But let's take a look at real time. What does that really mean? You have two types of real time. You have soft real time and you have hard real time. And real, hard real time is controlling your, you know, x-ray machine or something like that, where you may even have a dedicated processor that's just doing polling, just waiting to see when that thing is ready, right? You don't care about anything else in the world. You just wanted to do that. But then you have soft real time that says, okay, I can, you know, whatever I'm controlling is so slow and my processor is so fast 
that I can go back every once in a while and say, are you, are you okay? And I guess I can afford to expend a few CPU cycles to set up an interrupt, be able to handle it, and then do turn that interrupt back on for the next interrupt. But my processor and my, my things are fast enough that I can do all the processing before I need, I'll never fall behind. And so, you know, soft real time has been changing over the years because the processors are beginning faster and faster and faster because memory is becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And we're able to do more and more things with this soft real time model. So the definition of real time is, can I get back to handle the next interrupt in time that I don't miss one? Or I, or I, or I don't do the processing fast enough for whatever I do, that is real time. And, you know, so people are able to do more of that. And then there's, there's other ways of doing it. There's where there was one time there was a thing where you had two threads, which were down at the very bottom, and they were in a real time type of situation. And then you would pass off any other stuff to another thread, which is up above. So you know, basically the, the whole Linux kernel was moved at a level up and you had these two, you know, these two little uh, interrupt handlers handling the real interrupts in a real time situation. Now, there's many ways of handling that. So this concept of, you know, what can we do and, 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 and innovation and stuff, I, there's lots of innovation, and there's still other operating systems out there that are being worked on in the open source space. Tiny OS, um, you know, CMU Mock is still there. People are looking at microkernels and stuff. I'm not a big fan of microkernels, but you know, hey, that's me. And uh, so, you know, it's, and then we have this whole thing about quantum computing coming, and I'm terrified of that. I just. <laughs> I just want, I, I want to completely, completely retire or maybe die before I have to worry about quantum computing because I really don't want to have to worry about that. You know, I'll let some, I'll let the next generation worry about that. Okay, so changing gears a little bit, the the view of, of open source software has, has obviously changed for companies, you know, in the landscape over the years. Um, I mean, we can look at, at comments about how, you know, Linux was considered a virus and dangerous, but those were usually from direct OS competitors. So they were more slandering their competition than making an actual objective analysis. How do you think the view now of Linux has evolved from what it used to be? <sighs> well, again, this, this reminds me a little bit of politics where people just didn't really understand what Linux was. They saw it as a threat to their business model, but they never looked into it enough to be able to figure out, is this a real threat or can we actually leverage something off of it? So, you know, and, and this basically is also a difference between open source and free software. Open source is a benefit to any developer or any company because what it does is allow multiple people to work on the same set of a set, set of code and yet you can still add your secret sauce to it if you want to and have have a unique product that would you know nobody else could really duplicate and that's what you sell um then you have but the problem with that is that the end user is still not allowed to change that code. 
They're not allowed to fix the bug that they need to have fixed. They're not allowed to make the innovation or the extension that they need to make, right? I mean, you could do that. You could create your whole product out of some type of backplane and publicize how you make new modules to make the backplane. That's a little bit of what, like, what Udo does, and it's, that's very successful. But there's you know, too many companies, they only see that as their business model. And free software, on the other hand, does allow the end user to make the changes. Now, most of the end users don't have the expertise to make those. That's fine. They can go off and hire somebody to make it. They can make the business decision to either make the change or stay with the code they've got. But that becomes their business decision, not Microsoft's, not Oracle's, not IBM's, whatever. And this is this, I think, is the biggest difference between free software and open source. That, you know, we we talk about we talk about freedom. And most people don't understand the concept of freedom. It's a very nebulous thing. But if you watch the Black Lives Movement over the past summer, you realize that the opposite of freedom is slavery. And slavery is not just bad, it is horrible. It is, it, is, it is the worst possible thing that can be done to a human being other than death. And sometimes it's even worse than death. Because you're told where to go, what to do, who to marry, when to have children. The children are ripped away from you. You don't own anything, it's not yours. That is slavery. And slavery even affected white people, even affected free white people, because a free white person trying to work and earn a living can't compete economically with a slave. And that was one of the reasons why Abraham Lincoln decided to free the slaves. You know, yes, he knew that slavery was bad, but he didn't do it just because of that. He did it because feudalism was no longer in vogue, capitalism and slavery had taken over, and you can't live with slavery. So, you know, closed source software is another example of slavery. You're told when to upgrade it, you're told how many people could use it, you're told what processes you could put it on, you're told all this stuff. And when that company tells you that they're dropping that product and they're not going to support it anymore, and you can't get bug fixes to it, then you're stuck. And I have a drawer full of stuff I can't use anymore because the company that made it no longer supports it. So this is, you know, when companies began to realize, so this is why when, when Microsoft says, we love open source. Sure, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you love it. I'm sure. I'm sure you have individual engineers who really do contribute to projects and stuff like that. But that's not what you're saying, Microsoft. You don't say you love free software. You say you love open source. And Microsoft, you like going to OSCon. You've been going to OSCon for years. You like going to Linux Foundation conferences and stuff like that. But when have you invited somebody like me to go and talk to your user group 
about the advantages of using free software, Microsoft. Yeah, this is a this is something that I think is a, a challenge of our modern age is a lot of consumers don't seem to care. You know, they want the newest device. And like, for instance, on an Apple device, yeah, you own it, but you kind of don't. You can do what they allow you to do for as long as they allow you to do it. And then when they decide that they don't want you to use that anymore, well, you're kind of out of luck. And it's unfortunate that so many people are are just fine with that situation now. Because from from just looking at it in, you know, in the U.S., in a first world country, that's bad. But if you think around the world where hardware is harder to get or they don't have access to as much, being able to take hardware and reuse it and repurpose it is extraordinarily important for economically depressed areas. And for less investment. Yeah. Because what happens when you take the old hardware and you find a new use for it, and this is how Linux actually got started in the early days, if you remember. There weren't a lot of applications for Linux. There was only the stuff that came along with GNU Linux. And so all these old 386s that nobody wanted to have on their desk anymore because they were so slow, those were repurposed to routers. And they were repurposed to firewalls. And they were repurposed to all these other things so that you could now you know, justify getting this new system for your desk because you didn't have to throw out the old one. And you had all these people contributing their old systems to schools and stuff like that so they could put up thin clients to allow the students to use the computers and stuff. And what people also kept missing was that when your old system has a resale value, and that could be meant, that could be figured out in either you're reselling it, or you're simply using it for another another thing that's useful to you, that is value. When your old system has a value, instead of just throwing it away, you've actually made your cost of ownership of that new one cheaper. So you're know, just doing just doing pure economics, which I, I get infuriated because nobody ever does, you know, now all of a sudden you begin to see, oh yeah. Maybe I should be, you know, maybe when they when they'd say we're not going to support XP anymore. I don't know how many people were using XP when Microsoft decided not to support it anymore. But if I was to guess, it was measured in the hundreds of thousands. And Microsoft just simply said, nope, that's it. Then of course along came Spectre and Meltdown and stuff like that. Oh well, we'll put out one more bug fix. But nope, no more. You know. And, and you know, that's not true. In your heart of hearts, you know that there's some customer that's so big and so powerful that they, Microsoft will still fix it, won't they? Because they're, they're the Aetna life and casualty of the day. <laughs> yeah. So when you were talking about the corporate uh, view of things, another question that came to mind is that the corporate influence in the Linux space has, has greatly grown in the last decade as companies have finally kind of gotten on board of, hey, this is actually beneficial because we can outsource the OS development to everyone on the planet and we don't have to fund that personally. We can give our little piece back and get everybody else's piece as well. Or, or just cooperate, cooperate right. with making it and so everybody shares the expense, yes. So that obviously has driven corporate adoption, which is great. Um, and... 
that has also enabled companies to come up with, you know, tons of, of new hot things, as, as they say, for capabilities, for services, for features. But as that kind of corporate culture kind of grows, do you see it displacing kind of the classic uh, hacker culture that used to exist? Or are they kind of coexisting peacefully, so to speak? Well, this actually brings about a couple of things. Um, number one, uh, a few years ago, I came up with this brainstorm that nobody really buys a computer. They don't buy software. What they're actually buying is a solution to a problem. And even if all you want to do is play a game, that's a problem that you want to solve. And you can see that today because people buy game consoles, or maybe they play the game on the PC or whatever, but that's what they want to do. They want to play the game. And they really don't care if they're playing that game with two tin cans hooked together with a string, right? As long as they can play the game. So what's happening is that the focal point of the actual consumer has risen up that's no longer the operating system or the hardware, it's the solution, okay? And I think that, you know, people are beginning to realize this. And this is why, and, and Apple realized this some time ago, because they changed computing from being the computer, the gray box computer, into a consumer item. And they recognized that huge market. So in the days of the computer market, Scientific computing was about 16% of the market. Commercial computing was 84% of the market. But you compare that to consumer computing, and it's gigantic. There was a time when memory prices just dropped like a rock. Do you remember that? Do you know what caused that? It wasn't computers. It was digital TV. Because at that time, you might have one or two computers in your house. But you had, a you had a digital TV in every room, right? And so the demand for larger chips and more you know, and higher volume chips, and then we've gone to HD TV and 4K TV, and now we're going to have Smell-O-Vision. You know, but it's a consumer product that drives those prices. So this is what's going on in my, in my estimation. And so I think that what we need to do is figure out how we can allow people to innovate with these larger solutions, right? So example, you know, Samsung has a smart TV, you know, all these companies, LG has a smart TV, but you know, in your heart of hearts, that what's in the middle of that is actually Cody, right? So why should we be advocating to a smart kid buy a smart TV when you could actually buy a little single board computer like a Raspberry Pi, put Cody on it, and now you can build your own system, right? Your own solution. Remember when stereo systems weren't all in one? Remember when you had a turntable and you had a tuner and you had a mixer and you had a, a pre-amplifier and an amplifier and speakers, and you could get all this stuff from anybody, and they all went together because of standards in the industry. Well, that's what we should be doing with multimedia systems instead of just going down to our big box store and, and, and buying this, right? We should be allowing kids and students to build their own and see how it works. And they might find out that this wonderful thing called 7.1 surround sound 
is actually only two channels, left and right. It's not the real sound you're hearing. It's multiple channels, maybe 12 channels, but mixed together into two channels, stereo, left and right. And then you use some mathical, magical mathematical formula on it to make it sound as if it's coming from all these places. But what would happen if you could record all 12 channels and keep them separate until it kept to your living room? And then you could mix it. And you could hear what the clarinet sounded like because you're listening to the microphone that was right beside the clarinet because that's on one channel. This is what Og Vorpis can do. So these are types of things that we should be experimenting with and allowing people to experiment with. So that raises another another thought of mine because, you know, when you were discussing uh, the TVs and, and Cody, is what should we do about, you know, critical infrastructure that depends on false programs that largely kind of get forgotten, but yet are the fundamental building blocks of our modern society. I mean, the most recent example that comes to mind that most people think of is OpenSSL. It was there, everybody knew it was there, but they kind of just didn't bother with it or take any concern because, ah, you know, it just works. Yet everything else was built on top of it that needed it. That is, I mean, that is a problem. And I think what we need to do is to, um, there, there, I think there is this, uh, there's this, this thing in society also about rewarding people who are simply rich. Everybody knows Jeff, oh, here's a better example than the one I was about to give. Everybody knew Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs died on a particular day and the whole world went crazy that Steve Jobs had died. But in the same week, Dennis Ritchie had died. And very few people, relatively few people, recognized that, knew that, or anything. And yet, and Steve Jobs, you know, granted, created a multi-billion dollar company. But Dennis Ritchie helped to create a multi-trillion dollar economy. So, you know, and, and I knew Dennis personally, right? He was a very quiet, unassuming, friendly guy, willing to share anything he knew with anybody else. And I won't go into Steve Jobs. But um, I think we as a society have gotten off on the wrong thing. You know, we, we, we idolize the movie industry and actors and actresses and stuff. And granted, some of them are very good and they work very hard and they, they perfect their craft and stuff like that. But we wouldn't be watching them if it wasn't for people like Dennis Ritchie and Ken Thompson, you know. Here's another game. He'll probably be mad at me for even mentioning his name. Douglas McElroy. Do you know Douglas McElroy? I've heard the name, but that's that's about it. Yeah, he's the guy who actually was the, the manager of the lab that Ken and Dennis worked at. He hired Ken and Dennis into his lab. And it was Douglas McElroy who helped to run defensive tackle against the people to get them to, to get them the PDP-11 and to give them protection and stuff while they've been doing all this rough stuff with Unix. But also it was Douglas McElroy who's credited with the concept of macros. So if you work on an Excel spreadsheet and you want to create a macro of stuff, you can thank Dennis, Douglas McElroy. If Douglas McElroy is also credited with pipes and filters, 
And when he came up with the idea of pipes and filters, it was so arcane and so hard to understand that he actually had to write some of the first Unix commands to illustrate how pipes and filters should be used. And yet, nobody really knows him, right? And I was fortunate enough to find out that he had retired and was teaching at Dartmouth University in Hanover, New Hampshire. And he was teaching like an elementary computer courses stuff, right? And I went up there one time to a Linux meeting and Bill McKeaton was there talking about compilers. He's a good mutual friend of ours. And at the end of the, of the talk, I went to the front of the room. I looked back and there was Doug sitting up in the back of the room. And he came down to the front to say hello to Bill. And we start talking. And one of the students who's standing there says, wait a minute. You're talking like he did something with Unix or something. And I turned to Doug. I said, you didn't tell him anything about that, did you? He goes, oh, it was a long time ago. And it was, you know, not a... so I started telling the kid about, about Doug and what he had done. And the kid goes, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We need to energize STEM in high school. We need to get kids interested in learning. We need to say this is fun. It's not really, it's not really, well, it may be hard, but it's a hard fun. And when you come over, when you, when you conquer it, it's a personal thing. And actually nobody has to tell you, you did a good job. You know that yourself. So we need to work on that. It, it's interesting. A lot of people say, why do boys go into computer science and girls don't a lot? And I think I finally tracked it down. It's because girls, at, you know, particularly back in the 60s and 70s, when the PCs came out, girls were still given dolls and stuff like that. And boys were given PC computers, maybe to play games with or whatever. But parents gave the PCs to the boys, not, not all of them, but most of them, and gave dolls and stuff to the girls. If we had given more PCs to the girls, we might have a lot more women in computing today. So you were you were talking about education, and two friends of mine uh, that I've had on the program before are, are educators. Uh, Charlie Reisinger, who's the IT director of Penn Manor High School in Pennsylvania, or sorry, Penn Manor School District in Pennsylvania, and uh, Melanie Shimano, who's a lecturer at John Hopkins, and she started a food computer program in Baltimore. And both of them have spoken extensively about how well open source fits into education and how well it can do to empower students to learn more, to be creative, to get inspired. But yet when you look at our educational system, we don't see much of that. And there seems to be resistance to adopt it. Do you have any ideas of why that is? And then any ideas for what we as a kind of a broader society can do to help promote that? Sure. So you can attack this from a couple different angles. I mean, from the very beginning of computer companies like Apple and Microsoft, they recognized, oh, and, and even earlier than that, I mean, digital, there's a path to getting people to buy your computer system. And one of those paths is to make sure that people develop applications first on your system. No, you don't care where they send their applications after your system, but you want all these applications to first work on your system. So when people go to look for an application, they naturally will find it on your system. If it's not on your system, well, then you're out of luck. 
they'll go and buy somebody else's system with an application sets. So that's the first thing. You, you create a development environment, which is in your system. Now, this naturally goes into schools. You want to teach the students using your software of this is the only way you solve this problem, because then when the students get out, yours is the, is, is the computer that they're going to buy. Yours is the software that they're going to use. When, when, they, when they graduate from university, you know, and their companies say to them, well, we have this problem. What software should we, oh, well, you should use this software. This is what we're using in a university. So you give away the licenses to the universities, you give away the licenses to the high schools, and you send your, you know, your salespeople there to make sure that the school has stuff. And for a long time, I mean, this was, you know, the Apple salespeople show up, or some of the parents worked for Apple, some of the parents worked for Microsoft, and they said, you know, you should do this. And they would go and they, they, these companies all had programs to not only give software in certain cases, but software and hardware in certain cases, right? So they would outfit whole laboratories of these systems, knowing that when, you know, sooner or later, when these people graduated or whatever, that they would use their products. I mean, this is just a business thing. So now we have, along comes, quote, open source, right, or, or, or GNU Linux, or whatever you want to call it, as a product. And not only was it coming from behind, and it didn't have as many applications and everything, but the schools were more or less already set, particularly in first world countries, okay? And they were already set. And, you know, and if they, if they did want to redo their computer systems, they had people that could help them do that. And that wasn't always true with open source, free software. Um, I remember there was one school up in Portland, Oregon, one school system up in Portland, Oregon, that had been given all these licenses for Microsoft and stuff. And everything was, they were all fat, dumb, and happy about that until these the licenses had to be upgraded. And that was going to cost them $30,000 to upgrade the licenses. And there was this big thing because they didn't have that in their budget. They were going to have to lay off teachers in order to upgrade the licenses. And I don't know how that was eventually satisfied if Microsoft you know, said relented or whatever, but this is a problem. And the school boards don't think about it, okay? They also don't think about the fact that maybe these students, and particularly in universities, maybe these students are using these programs as part of the university program, part curriculum, which is perfectly legal. But now the student goes off and gets a summer job and is using the same software on the summer job, and that's not legal. That's against the license. And so, in effect, the school is making them a software pirate. I ran into a group of students in Brazil that they were happily pirating Adobe software. And I said, do you know how much that costs? And they said, oh, a couple hundred dollars. No, $13,000. And they didn't believe me. I said, go to the website, take a look at the prices. You know, you are a software pirate for $13,000. And if Adobe wanted to, they could come and prosecute you for that. And there have been cases about that. That's why the business software license, the BSA, and I'm not talking about the Boy Scouts of America, the BSA, 
is an organization that's funded by Microsoft and Adobe and Oracle and all these people to go after people that they find are using unlicensed software. Sometimes it's on purpose, but sometimes it's not on purpose. It's by accident, but it doesn't make any difference. And I know I keep pointing these things out, but not too many people listen to me. So is this just something where we're just going to have to be relentless and continually to, to continue to promote the benefits of free and open source software? Yes. Um, I would like to see more business models of free and open source software taught in universities. So, you know, taught in civics classes, you know, when you in high schools and stuff, when you learn about civics and running governments and stuff, what should you be doing? You know, you should think about in this day and age, what happens if China all of a sudden decides to shut off the computers coming to the United States? Or the United States decides that we're not going to sell any more technology to China because they're bad people. Um, I think Hawaii is or is you know part of that. The, the tele telephony company in in China that's trying to bring out five G and is being told no. The United States is not going to use your hardware, your software because we're afraid that you're going to spy on us. And Hawaii says no, no, no. We're not going to do that. Well, they can solve that problem. When they sell that equipment, they sell it as open source or free software. And they sell it under license, you know, under a contract. So, you know, the, the people that are getting the software get all the sources. They can look at it. They could build it themselves if they wanted to. And they could make sure that there's no back doors to it. Very simple solution. So in, in talking about Huawei, obviously that brings the, the hardware side into it as well. We know that there are open source hardware projects that are out there. I mean, RISC-V, there's Open Power, there's LibreSoc. Do you think we're going to arrive at that point where it will be just as easy to go to the store and buy an open source hardware system or order one online than it has been over the years to just order a regular x86 or AMD64 system? Well, I think that Yes, uh, I think it's impractical that every single uh, piece of hardware out there is going to be different in some way. I mean, you could build everything from source code all the way up, you know, every time. But there, there's issues with that. Like, you know, if you have 1,500 systems in your business, do you really want to build 1,500 versions of the operating system and all the applications just because they're all different? But what it can do is in certain places, give you the ability to really make sure your system is secure. Now, I'm gonna go on a little bit. Okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you, and I'm not saying that any of this is true, um, but if you talk with Edward Snowden a lot, you start to get these little things go up and down your back. So we all understand the concept of there's a bug in the operating system. There's a bug in an application that can create a trap door. That can, you know. And so we say, well, we'll use an open source operating system like Linux or BSD or something like that so we can see the source codes, so we can build it ourselves. except sometimes, and it was a very famous case of this, that the trap door is not in the operating system itself. It's actually in the compiler. And the compiler inserts that trapdoor into the operating system as you build it. So unless you look at the source code for the compiler, you can't see it, except 
the trapdoor is not in the source code for the compiler. It's actually in the binary of the compiler. That So when you compile the compiler, the binary inserts the trapdoor mechanism into the compiler, into the binary of the compiler, and that's what you use to build the trapdoor into the operating system. So, but assuming that you fix all of that, then you get down to the hardware. And we already know the problems with the BIOS and trapdoors in the BIOS and things like that. So, geez, we have to you know, fix the BIOS too. But then we have another problem because in a complicated instruction set computer like Intel or AMD or others, you have this microcode and the microcode can have a trapdoor in it and you can't see that. You can't see inside the chip. So what you have to do is you have to make sure that that chip was produced by somebody that you really trust. And that's fine for the people in the United States, maybe less fine for the people in China. It's definitely not fine for the people in Brazil and so forth and so on. So you really need to have control over everything. And the average person, of course, doesn't have the expertise to do this. But if your government is serious about real security, they have to develop. And, and granted, maybe Monaco doesn't have enough people in it to, to do this, but Monaco could come together in a coalition with other countries that size that they all trust to do this. And even if you go past the trapdoor stuff, this is this a supply chain thing. Can you trust that the people that are supplying you with all this stuff are going to continue to supply you with it, or are they going to cut you off? Because if you think about it, what happens if I snap my fingers like this and computing stops? Well, my screen, talking to you, just disappears, right? Our conversations interrupted. Police, you know, Texas, I think, went through a very clear example of what happens when electricity disappears, okay? And it would be the same thing if computing disappeared these days. And we have to do something to make sure that that doesn't happen. Because when people live in fear, when I fear that China's going to do that, or China fears that we are going to do that, that's when we start seeing the goose-stepping come out. So to, to look on a more positive light for the future. This was positive. <laughs> what are things that you, or projects that you see being developed or challenges you see people tackling that really excite you for what we can accomplish in the future? Well... For the last 12 years, I've been working on a project in Brazil called Caninas Lucas, and that stands for Crazy Canines. And um, it started because the Raspberry Pi came out, and here was this magnificent $35 computer that could be used in schools, could be used by hobbyists and stuff to do amazing things. But unfortunately, because of all the tariffs and stuff, and this is where I really wanted to get back to Mr. Trump and explain tariffs to him, all the tariffs and stuff that, you know, in Brazil, the street price was 150 US dollars. So if it's $35, you say, oh, here, kid, here's a Raspberry Pi, do your worst to it, he blows it up, oh, that's okay, here's another $35 Raspberry Pi, but when it's $150, and it's to somebody who makes, has a, has a GDP, a country has a GDP of two-thirds of the United States, so it's actually like $200, after they blow up the first one, you're not so likely to give them the second one. So we had this idea of manufacturing the Raspberry Pi in Brazil because the 
the the fifty percent, no, the hundred percent duty of a finished product coming into Brazil was reduced to sixteen percent on an assembled product coming into Brazil, and even less if the parts were not manufactured in Brazil. So you you can't get a ARM CPU in Brazil. Therefore, there's no tax on importing it. But as soon as you take that CPU and put it onto a printed circuit board, which can be manufactured in Brazil, that becomes an assembly, and now it's taxed at 100% of the cost of the assembly coming into Brazil. So we worked for two years with the Raspberry Pi Foundation. We actually produced 10 Raspberry Pis in Brazil. They work. And then the Raspberry Pi Foundation said no. Now, they never told me why they said no. I have reasons, I think, why they said no, but I'm not going to say them here. Um, but in any case, we started looking around. We found a little company in China that produced a very nice little system. The company was called The Maker. The system was called The Guitar. It was actually a two boards, a core board, an I.O. board separate that had advantages. And we started the process of manufacturing that, basically buying kits from them and manufacturing that. I was working with the university, the University of Sao Paulo, and uh, we were working along. But then we started thinking about it more. And more than just manufacturing this, we wanted to design and manufacture the little computers in Brazil. So we started producing a line of them this Labrador, which is a lot a lot like the Raspberry Pi, similar to the Raspberry Pi in functionality. Then we had a tiny little computer called the Poga or Flea. That was for sensors that used a very small ARM microprocessor. And then we had other plans for a larger, almost Beowulf-like, high-performance-like system called the uh, Kerberos. Um, and that was that's been moving along. And, you know, so we want to be able to design and manufacture these computers in Brazil. Then the RISC-V thing came along. And back when they, when they just announced, when Sci-5 announced their first uh, uh, yeah, RISC-V computer, I happened to be there. I happened to be there for a Lanero conference, and they took me to their office and I had already purchased a couple of their boards. They gave me some books and stuff. I introduced them to the people at University of Sao Paulo. And the University of Sao Paulo has now been looking at using RISC-V chips in these systems. So we want to stimulate Latin America into making this and eventually get a fabrication plant down there to fabricate the RISC-V chips in Latin America. So that, to me, is a very exciting project. But again, is producing hardware, and nobody buys hardware. Nobody buys software. They buy solutions. So this started a second project that I've been working on. There's been a lot of stuff in the United States about colleges and universities, how expensive they are, how students get deeply into debt. In Latin America, if you go to a federal or state university, is typically free of tuition. It's paid for by the taxes. In a supposedly third world country, they could afford to send their students to university for free, tuition free. Qualified students, you have to take a very hard entrance exam to get in. 
But 40% of the students who pass the entrance exam still can't take advantage of the education because they don't have the money to pay for an apartment, transportation, internet, computers, books, all the food. You know, their families are poor families out in some village or something. They're at the university. They need all this stuff and they can't afford that. So 40% of the kids who qualify can't do it. Some of them get jobs, night clerk at a, hot, at a hotel, flipping hamburgers and stuff, but they're supposed to low paying and they don't really do anything to teach them what they want to do for a living. So about 12 years ago, I started thinking about this and I came up with this project called Project Kawan. And Project Kawan has gone through a lot of ramifications, different things, but basically what it does is say to the students, you can form your own company using free and open source software and hardware to either just sell services that people need or sell products and services. And we're going to make it so easy for you to do this that you're going to do it. Because in my 50 years in the computing industry, I have figured out that there's two ways you get somebody to do something. You either make the results of this, the reward of this, so powerful that they will do it even if they have to climb Mount Everest. Or else you make it so easy, they say, what the fuck? And when those two things cross, that's when they do something, right? So we're going to make it very easy for them to do this. We're going to provide sample contracts that are valid contracts in their own country. We're going to provide, you know, skeletons for building these products off of off-the-shelf hardware and free software you can put together. And you can sell this to people who want it. And then you can sell them a contract to help them keep it up to date, to help them, you know. And people say, well, Mad Dog, people don't want contracts to keep the TV up to date. We, you know, they don't want that. They just want to buy the TV and that's it. But you can make a case for the government to keep this up to date. Because if you put a smart TV in everybody's home, there's approximately 30 million homes in Brazil that do not have internet. Well, if they did have internet, they don't have the hardware that could use utilize it. But with a $35 computer and, a, and an LCD screen and keyboard and mouse, you can make that first connection to the internet and also give them a Wi-Fi router, also give them a burglar alarm with a webcam pointed towards the front door, also give them a multimedia system, also give them all this stuff. And the government can reduce the amount of money they spend because they, do, they can do homeschooling over the internet. They can have these people, they can teach adults over the internet how to get a new job to make more money and pay more taxes. So I've been through lots of rounds of Project Kawan. I do now, I now at this point, I have 100 students in Argentina that would like to do this. I have 40 students in a place called Ubatuba, Brazil, that want to do this. I have some students in a city in Western Brazil. And I actually have even have some students at uh, California State University, San, Car San Marcos campus, that are interested in doing this. 
And in July, there's going to be an event in Detroit called um, Tech Fest. It is a version of Campus Party. And it's going to be three days. They wish to attract all these students there, all these young, between 18 and 32. And I want to put on a presentation about Project Kawan and about one of our products that we're going to be making available. And I hope to inspire some of the people in Detroit to do this, to make money so that they can go to college. There's nothing to stop people from doing this as a, as a regular job, you know, but I'm really focused, kind of focused on making sure those university students can afford university. Yeah, I think it's interesting that, you know, the computers and the internet have revolutionized the distribution of music, TV, information. But it seems that schooling has lagged behind and that we're sticking with the old classic method of education that we've had for hundreds of years and that education hasn't made that jump yet to all the tools it now has at its disposal. Except 20 years ago, my niece, who lives in Pennsylvania, joined this company that teaches over the internet. It is a private company, but it's, it's, it, it does all of its business through contracts with the public school systems in about 10 different states. And the company buys student the computer. They pay for the internet connection to the house that everybody can use, but they pay for it. That's part of it. And this is all paid for through taxes. You know, the parents pay nothing. Okay. So the students are sitting at home. They're learning their studies. My niece can't see any of them. They can all see her. They can hear her. All of the students chat back to her. They put all their all their schoolwork is typed in so she doesn't have to deal with high and writing she can't understand. Everything she says, everything they write, everything they chat is recorded. If there's any question about anything that she has said, they have a record. Um, she loves this. She used to teach at a brick and mortar school. She would have 60 students that she was responsible for, and she was exhausted at the end of the day. She had to do study hall duty, lunchroom duty and stuff. You know, she had to to, you know, make sure the kids behaved. None of this happens with this school. The school also sets up um, physical education classes through YMCA's and stuff like that. They also set up trips, school trips. You remember going to the bakery and stuff? They set that up so the students can, can do that. And she's been doing this for 20 years now. Now, her company has does everything from kindergarten through 12th grade. And they've been at it long enough so the kids that went into this program in kindergarten have now graduated from high school and gone on to college. And they've gotten grades, they've graduated from college. And they have found out that on the average, their kids do as good or better than the kids who go to brick and mortar school. So I have a real hard time with all these people who say, we can't do this, okay? 
And and when the, when the pandemic first started, I wrote to her and I said, "You need you need to go to your management, and you need to have them say this, because maybe there are people that can't learn this way. Maybe there's special needs kids. Maybe that. But if you could take the bulk of the kids and teach them like this, it takes the pressure off the building, so you can now do the social distancing and stuff like that." And it protects the kids and protects the teachers. I mean, there's side benefits to this. You know, if you want to take some language like Chinese or, you know, Mandarin or, you know, or this is Chinese, you know, something like that, you know, back when I was going to school, you, you know, they, they gave you Spanish, French, and English. That was your choices. And most of us didn't even learn English. So, you know, that's what they gave you. But with this program, they can find you a native Mandarin speaking Chinese person who can teach you how to speak. And, you know, it just, it boggles the mind. I mean, you, you want to learn from a real physicist, you can pull in a guest speaker you know, over the net. And, you know, I just, I don't know. I mean, I can, I can understand that some kids don't learn like that, but this is a pandemic. You know, it's an emergency. The other thing, this program is 70% of the cost of teaching in a brick and mortar school. On a per student basis, they pay 70% of what it would cost to teach in a brick and mortar school. For that other 30%, you can buy a lot of special perks for the kids to make them feel you know, you could, for that 30%, you could actually find somebody to stay at home with your kids while you're at work if you feel that, you know, they have to have somebody overlook them, right? So. What's, if you don't mind telling me, what's the name of, of that uh, school? Because I'd love to look into it. I'm, I'm doing this off the top of my head. I think it's Connections Academy. Okay. I'll have to look that up. Well, I can tell you later if it if it is if it is if you can't find it but i'm pretty sure it's connections academy okay so one of the things that i i love about the open source community at large is that we are able and flexible enough to adapt to problems as they arise so if something happens we can all get together you know think together what's the best option what's the best outcome and come up with a plan and implement it and we can do that so much faster than what a government can because governments move so slow and i would i would love to to follow up with you know the things that you've you've mentioned with with the educational things i'd love to hear you know years down the road that they've been successful because at the end of the day for me that's individuals working with individuals to create a better world which is pretty much the whole basis of free and open source software is all of us working together are smarter than just a few of us making all the decisions and doing everything. I mean, this was actually proven many years ago by a study with NASA, where they pretended that there was a crash on the moon and a certain number of people had survived with that. And they had to decide what they were going to take with them in order to survive long enough to get to a safe place. And you first had people sit around the room, you made up your own list, and then you got into groups and you compared the lists and stuff like that. And then you, you know, and then you had to come to consensus. It was always consensus. You had to come to consensus about what you would take as, as a whole group. And it was almost invariably 
that the whole group would come up with the best list as it was determined by NASA as being the best list. They would come up with the best list as opposed to any of the single people, no matter how smart they were. So, you know, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's something that is, to me, it's just inherently, you know, it's just, I, I'm not so egotistical to think that I am the person who's going to come up with the best answer in the world. And so I learned a long time ago you know, to say the magic words. I was wrong. You know, hey, great idea. I was wrong. Just like just like my my young TA, you know, great idea. Go tell our boss, you know. And to me, a manager is somebody who can recognize that the manager's job is to help their employees be successful to get them the resources they need to make sure that the funds are directed properly and stuff but overall their job is to make because otherwise why don't they just do everything why do you need the employees screw them you know you need you know the manager's job is to make sure that the employees are successful and this unfortunately or fortunately, as the case may be, brings about something you may want to cut out of your, your broadcast. I'm sorry. But over the past year, well, ever since 2016, I've been a big fan of Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders is, of course, that democratic socialist that everybody hears the word socialist and goes you know, crazy. At least the, the conservative parties go crazy. But I started looking into it. And I found out that the democratic socialist is actually the same thing as an employee-owned co-op, where the, the employees own the company, and the employees decide what the company is going to do. The employees may hire a manager for, management firm to implement it. So this is kind of a weird thing to think about. The employees hire the managers. The managers then tell the employees how to do this, but the employees are the ones who say thumbs up or thumbs down on the way that management is doing stuff. But the employees are the ones who own it. And all the profits go back into the employees. They don't go to stockholders. They go to, don't go to the owner of the company. And I started looking at this. I started looking at economists like Dr. Richard Wolf, uh, Dr. Robert Reich. Robert Reich was the... Uh, Secretary of Commerce or Secretary of Labor, I can't remember which. I think it's Secretary of Commerce under Bill Clinton. He's teaching out at Berkeley now, uh, Cornell West, and you know he's at Harvard. Started looking at all these people and going, huh, this is kind of interesting. And so that's why Project Kawan is actually about co-ops, that instead of having one company that has a million employees, I'm going to create a million companies that have one employee or maybe two, uh, you know, but this, this has some ramifications to it. So for example, if you have a company that's belching out smoke and poisoning the river and creating heavy trucks and run over kids and stuff like that, and the owner of the factory lives in Hawaii and doesn't care about any of this stuff, and the owner could simply move the factory to someplace like Mexico or China to get lower wages and labor and stuff. That's what they might do. But if you're the employee of that company, you may say, hey, let's stop 
polluting the air to stop polluting the river that we're seeing that. Let's make sure we don't put mercury in the ground because it's going to come back and bite us. Okay. And you figure out ways of running your company without that. You don't move your company to China because then you, you and all your fellow employees would be out of a job. You figure out how to make your company more efficient. And so I, I started looking at all this and said, yes, this makes a lot of sense. And so part of Project Kawan, and it, it, it's also interesting that Richard Wolf, Dr. Richard Wolf, has been teaching economics for many, many years. He taught at Harvard, he taught at Yale, you know. And he said every time he brought up Marx, people's face would turn white and they would quickly shuffle off the concept of talking about Marx or anything about Marxism at all, that capitalism was the only thing they wanted to talk about. And so I started looking into all these economic platforms, you know, feudalism, capitalism, slavery, you know, socialism, communism, you know, and saying, no, Bernie Sanders is not a communist. He believes in private ownership. But he believes that the employees should own the company, not the capitalists. And there's even ways that you can take a capitalistic company and move it so it's owned by the employees. And this has happened several times. Uh, a person, maybe they're, they built the company up, they're getting old, they and their wife would like to retire, you know, but they say, well, what about the company? How do we, you know, how can we sell the company? to get the money we want to retire. And Wolf will go in with some of his components and say, hey, this is simple. You know, you evaluate how much the company is worth because that's what you're going to sell it for. And then you go to a bank or some type of thing to borrow the money so that the employees can buy the company. And now the company has that debt, but the employees in running the company pay back that loan eventually to you know, to have the company free and clear. And now the employees own the company. But yet, this is not even discussed in the United States. It's not talked about. Do you ever buy Land Lakes butter? Do you know that Land Lakes is not a company? It's a co-op. My brother and sister-in-law have belonged to an electric co-op for the last 50 years. It's in Pennsylvania. It's part of the Royal Cooperative Rural uh, Electrification Program, and the customers own the company. So every month they get this little card in the mail. They go out to their electric meter. It has three digits on it. They write down the three digits on the card. They plop the card back into the mail. The next couple of weeks they get a bill. They pay the bill and send it back. And then once a year, the company sends out a meter reader to make sure that they haven't been cheating. And every year, the company says, okay, we set aside this much for an investment in the future, this much for repairs, and so forth and so on. Here's our meeting. We talk about everything out in the open. You elect a new board of directors, a new staff, but here's your dividend back. This is the profit we made that after we've taken all this other money out, we have this profit made, and according to how much electricity you bought, that's how much money you get back. Nothing wrong with that. So, you know, I mean, and, and there are there is an association of co-ops in the United States. I used to belong to one called REI that sold recreational equipment. And every year I would buy so much from them and I would get a, you know, 
return back as to how much profit they made. When I was in college, I belonged to a cooperative grocery store where the employees owned it. And I never got such fresh vegetables any other place at such low prices because, you know, it was their store. You know, they took pride in running their store. And um, I just think we need to have more. Yeah, that's one thing that is is always special for me about open source because it's it's owned by all of us. We all can take that code and use it. There, there aren't restrictions that are baked in for what we can and can't do with it. And it allows us as a as a larger community to really just innovate and come up with with new ideas. It, it reminds me actually of the scientific method, where if somebody has an idea, it can be tested. And if it works out better, well, then we all benefit. Right. And I would correct what you said with one little caveat. Okay. That's open source of the source code that we can see. But with free software, that's all of the source code. Yeah, that, I, I meant free software. My brain just okay. went to open source. Yeah, I know. That's a problem. You know, yeah, it I, is. I Go ahead. I'm one of the people credited with coming up with the term open source, but I was in the bathroom when Eric Raymond said that. By the time he came back, he and, and Tim O'Reilly and all the rest of those guys decided on that. It was, that was the end of it, right? So, you know, and over the years, I've just become more of a free software person rather than open source. It's a bad habit of mine that I just, my brain defaults to open source instead of saying free software, which is why sometimes I'm able to catch myself and then I just use the longer free and open source to make sure all bases are covered. Well, and, and now we've extended it even further, free and open source software and hardware and culture. Mm -hmm. You know, let's not forget Lawrence Lessig, who did this wonderful thing of Creative Commons and said, hey, you know, maybe we can share some of this music. Maybe we can innovate on top of this. Maybe we can, you know, do this. And I was really happy that I was down in Brazil at a conference when Lawrence Lessig came down there and tried to sell Brazil on free software, or on free culture, right? On Creative Commons. And at that time, Gilberto Gil was the Minister of Culture for Brazil. Now, Gilberto Gil is a very famous rock star in Brazil. He is the famous, the most famous rock star in Brazil. And so when President Lula went to pick a minister of culture, he picked Gilberto Gil. I mean, if, if the United States picked a minister of culture, it probably would have been Dick Cheney. So, you know, so Lawrence Lessig decides to go to Brazil and he's told, well, you have to convince Gilberto Gill about this. Okay, can I make an appointment? Oh, he's really busy. No, no, please come. Well, you can have an appointment, but it's in Rio de Janeiro at one o'clock in the morning. You can go to his apartment and talk to him about this Creative Commons thing. So Lawrence gets all of his people together, you know, and they go to Gilberto Gill's apartment and they get buzzed into the apartment. They go upstairs and there's Gilberto Gill sitting in the middle of the floor, barefoot, with his guitar, and he's playing, and he signals for them to sit down. And Lawrence starts talking about, you know, Creative Commons and all this stuff, and he goes on for about five or 10 minutes, and Gilberto Gil looks, stops playing, looks up at him and says, I read all about this on the internet. How do we do this? What do we do? <sighs> so 
gets Gilberto Gil to consign five of his songs to Creative Commons and license it. And then they decide they're going to go to this conference, this open source conference, this free software conference, and make the announcement. And I'm there. And they say to me, would you like to be part of this? Oh, sure. Be happy. So we get up on this platform. There's all these you know, people sitting up there, free software people from Brazil. There's, you know, but Gilberto Gil wasn't there. He's held up because President Lula has something to talk to him about. And he's going to be late, but he's coming. So we you know, give our talks and everything. I stand up. I'm giving my talk. And all of a sudden, the entire auditorium bursts into cheering. And in comes Gilberto Gil up the aisleway, waving at everybody. It comes up. I'm still standing there with my speech at the podium and stuff. He comes up. He says, I'm sorry I interrupted your talk. I looked at him and I said, Mr. Joe, they don't want to hear about me. They want to hear about you. And I sat down and he gave a great talk about everything. And of course, in Portuguese. And then afterwards, his, his band gave a big free concert to all the people that were there. It was, it was just fantastic. So I go back to the United States. I'm back here for about a month or so. I get this email message. Dear Mr. Hall. Gilberto Joe is coming to the town hall in New York City. He's going to be giving a concert there with one of these nonprofit groups. Would you like to go? Of course I would. And so we're going to give you two tickets, one for yourself and one for a friend. You know, just show up at the office, tell them who you are, they'll give you the tickets. So we did. We had a great time. But, you know, that's the type of guy he is, right? And... This type of impact. There's there's a type of music in Brazil, in the northeast of Brazil, where they're very much into Creative Commons. And what happens is that if you go to a concert, they will allow you to take your recording device and stick it right into the soundboard and make a recording of it. And then you can take that home, you can blow your own CD, you can put it out onto, take it to the music pirates out on the street, and they can sell it. They sell it for you know fifty cents or a buck or you know twenty five cents, whatever they can get for it. And people buy that. But then the same band takes it, edits it, cleans it up, puts it in a plastic jewel case, puts a photograph on it, gets the signatures from the artist. And at the next concert, they sell these for like five dollars a copy. But the music pirates help them to advertise their music to the people in the streets so they all go to the concert because they want to hear these people live. The Grateful Dead did this 40 years ago, 50 years ago, okay? And we're doing it today. So don't tell me that you can't make a business plan around free culture. Yeah, Metallica did the same thing with uh, bootleg copies. and But of course, then they turned the page and decided to then sue the people who were later sharing their music in, in a amazing case of irony. But see, that's where the license comes in, right? The license mm -hmm. has to be there. And people get so confused between the concept of copyright and a copy of the, and the license. And I used to tell Richard Stallman, he used to, you know, he used to be down on copyright and stuff. I said, Richard, without copyright, your license would have no power. And people would still develop the software they, they create binaries, they'd only distribute the binaries, and people still would see how it was. And you would have no control over them doing that. But copyright gives you the control 
over your intellectual property to deal with it any way you want to. And that's where the license comes in. I could never get him to admit that. So on the on the topic of, of open culture, and there's been concern over IBM's acquisition of Red Hat. Is that a concern you share? Or do you think that Red Hat is going to be able to have a positive impact on IBM's culture instead of it being IBM affecting Red Hat's culture? <sighs> okay. So there was this guy named Daniel Fry. This is probably around 1996 or so. Daniel Fry was the vice president of free software or Linux or whatever you want to call it back in those days for IBM. And I, I liked Dan Fry a lot. IBM was actually one of the uh, members of Linux International back in the early days. And I knew Dan. And one day he invited me to Austin, Texas to IBM's research facilities because there was going to be a big meeting. And Dan was very aware of the fact that IBM was this monster corporation that had been known for all sorts of closeness and stuff like that. It sued as a monopoly, had to you know do stuff to open it up. He was very aware of all that. And he said to me, Mad Dog, do you think that the free software community would object to having IBM there? And I said, Dan, this goes back to a time where we actually had this conversation in the Linux kernel group of should people be able to make money off free software? Should people be able to take my software and sell it for money when I give it away for free? And the thing is, if you object to that, if you stop companies like IBM and Hewlett Packard and, and DEC and Sun making money off of your free software, that free software will move forward slowly like a glacier. They will fight it tooth and nail every step of the way. But if you allow them to make money off of it, then they will embrace it in their business plan eventually. So we went to this meeting. I gave a speech to these people. And uh, then they said, well, we're going to have a private meeting. You have to go in this little room. You know, it's all private. You can't see it stuff. So I went into the room. I'm sitting in there probably half an hour, an hour. I have to go to the bathroom. So I go outside and I'm looking for the bathroom. And I happen to peek through this curtain. And there's this big screen up there. And they're projecting a letter up on the screen. And on that letter, it said this phrase. In the past, IBM has been a closed source company unless we've had a business reason to do open source. In the future, we're going to be an open source company unless we have a business case for being closed. And it was signed to Lou Gershner. And at that point, I felt this, my, the hair sticking up in the back of my neck because I knew that this one sentence was going to change the whole way that IBM worked because I'd experienced this at DEC. We had engineers who work on projects. The project was retired or obsolescent or whatever. And the engineer would say, can I release my, my code into the free software community? And the company would make them go through hell to a gauntlet to get that software out there. And after the engineer went through that, they said, never again, never, never going to volunteer it again. But what IBM did was turn it around and say, now it's the product manager who has to come up with a reason why we should not be releasing the software. And they put the illness back on the person that wanted to, quote, make money off it. So it was shortly after that that IBM announced that they were going to invent, invest a billion dollars 
interface software. And shortly after that, they reported they made $2 billion off their billion-dollar investment. Then IBM said, oh, we're going to sell off our Lenovo and our desktop systems. Why? Well, in a company like IBM, when you sell a system like that, you're making 2 to 3% profit off of the hardware. And that's not enough to keep a company like IBM alive. You need 19 to 20% profit off of a product to really make it alive. I mean, you could... You can smooth over that line and stuff, but it has to be 19 to 20%. And there is only one part of IBM that made that much money, their solutions division. But if you say to the solutions division, you can only sell solutions that use IBM equipment, then you're tying a hand behind their back. But if you sell off those, those unprofitable parts and say, now you can use Apple laptops you can use Dell desktops. You can use anything you want to create the solution of 19 to 20%. That just frees you up. And so if you really look at what IBM did in selling off Lenovo, they, they took all the people, the upper management who had been doing that, and they brought them back into the services of solutions division because these are good people. They're smart. They know the market. They brought them back, and they did one other thing. They took the money they got from Lenovo and they bought PricewaterhouseCooper. They doubled the size of their solutions business overnight. And they knew that using open source made it easier for them to create the solutions. Because if you try and take two binary products and make them work together, it's kind of like taking two glass rods and gluing them and making them stick together. They're too smooth. But if you rough them up a little bit, and allow them to interact like that, then you can make a strong bond. That's what you do with open source. Can't do that if it's closed. So IBM buying Red Hat. IBM had their own web stuff, but it wasn't very popular. And they said, you know, how can we sell solutions to stuff when the first thing we have to do is send somebody off to a third party for their software and everything well, buy you know, Red Hat and bring them in. Now, what's the other thing they did? What did they do after they, brought, after they bought Red Hat? The largest software purchase of a company ever, you know, a very lucrative purchase. I wish I'd had Red Hat stock at that time. What did they do? They moved Jim Whitehurst into a very senior position at IBM. The president of IBM. So, and, and why did they do that? They said, because Jim understands free software and the community. So do you think that Jim is going to take this and somehow destroy it? I don't think so. Is it going to be tough? Sure. I'll tell you why. Oh, another little story. Once upon a time, in the early days of Unix Expo and stuff like that, and Uniforum, you know, we would have these big, shows in San Francisco and stuff. And digital would go out there. And all of the marketing people for digital would say, if you're going to be in the booth, you have to wear a suit and a tie and a white shirt and clothes shoes, stuff like this. And that's what every vendor did. Didn't make any difference. Hewlett Packard, you know, Sun, everybody. So one day, I'd be, and we would, we would object to this. We'd say, oh, this is uncomfortable. Even our, our customers are coming in in shorts and T-shirts 
and laughing at the people. They think the people in the suits don't know anything about Unix, even though these are some of our Unix engineers. They don't believe they're engineers because they're in the suit. So one show, IBM shows up in golf shirts and slacks. And at the next show, everybody was in golf shirts and slacks. Because if IBM could do it, then anybody could do it. So on the on the issue of conventions and conferences, obviously right now with, with COVID, there aren't any going on. But I know you've you've made a point of going to conferences or Linux conferences around around the country. How important do you think it is for people that are in the open source community to actually go to these events and get time to talk with other people who are enthusiastic about open source software instead of it just always being on IRC or on a forum? Do you think there's a, a strong benefit to that actual in-person connection? Well, I know there is. Um, the thing is that in this day and age, there's people who are so very busy. You know, if you're going to a, a show like Scale out in Pasadena or something, it's one thing if you're in Pasadena, it's a day that you're going to the show or the event or something. Um, but if you're traveling from the East Coast, it's at least three days for one day event. And so, you know, you have to work that into your time. It's time away from your family and so forth and so on, time away from, you know, what you think of as your work. But I think it's, I think it's important. And what I, there's, but I also like the, the kind of like regional shows, like the Ohio Linux Fest, Texas Fest, you know, and I hope that some of those come back. But I also like the idea that today, more and more, people are creating hybrid events where they videotape or they, they record all of the stuff that's said by the speaker, and they make that available for free to anybody who wants to do this. And this is one thing that Campus Party is very good about. They have like nine stages. They give talks not only about free software, but about uh, mathematics, about uh, video, you know, all this different entrepreneurship, and they store these online, and people can go and see these things after the fact. Um, so in this past year, there's been a lot of these, well, all virtual events, they're not hybrid because of COVID. But I hope that as we come out of this, they become more of a hybrid event where you can go and you can see this. But even if you're there in person, I mean, Way back in the days of Dicus, I would buy these audio tapes of each person's talk that were produced commercially, and I would bring them home. And those with the printed slides that were there, it was almost like being in the person's talk itself. I didn't get the chance to ask questions, but I did get the information and things like that. And a lot of times there were multiple tracks. You couldn't be two places at once. So, you know, recording at least the principal talks gives you the ability to go to a lesser known talk if you want to and be able to hear that. Then back at the hotel at night, you could listen to the uh, talk that you missed or later on, you know, a couple of years later, you could listen to it again or you could share it with somebody else. I think these are all good things. Um, it's interesting how much stuff is still relevant today of the things that we did 20 years ago. So at the first Use Linux conference where we had people come from, you know, used to put it on, 
we had a lot of Unix people there. And a lot of the free software people came, like Linus was there and Alan Cox and other people were there, you know, David Miller. And somebody came, got up and did a talk about Malik and all the different versions of Malik and how they were useful and, 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 and how they could use them better and stuff like that. And it was a good talk. And a guy named Andrew Hume, who had been in the Ustix group for a million years, got up, said, hey, there's a great talk you did. It was wonderful. But you know, we had the same talk 10 years ago. And we came up with exactly the same conclusions you did. And we published them as they're on our net site, if you just pulled it down and looked at it. But one difference is we actually had measurements that showed, that proved what you said. And uh, there was that one. Uh, there was another talk that was really wonderful, a guy by the name of John Mashey. John Mashey, if you ever look at people like Hennessy and stuff like that who are into hardware architectures, Mashey, I believe, came from Bell Labs. And he gave a talk a long time ago in the first days, maybe the first Usedix conference, about the 25 things he thought was wrong with computer development, software development, stuff like that. He gave the talk, everybody clapped, it was very good. Everybody said, yeah, John, you're exactly right. Those are the things that are wrong. So for the 25th anniversary of Usenix, they invited him back. They said, John, it's been 25 years, we give a talk along the same lines. What's wrong with software development today? John said, sure. So he gets up, he gives a talk and stuff like that. Everybody listens to it, a big round of applause. Exactly right. That's exactly right. He says, there's only one thing that's wrong. He says, this is exactly the same talk, word for word, that I gave 25 years ago. Nothing of these 25 points has improved in the 25 years. Nothing. And people laughed about that. But then the webmaster of Ustix came up and said, can I have a copy of your PowerPoint? He says, there is no PowerPoint. The slides that I showed you today are plastic slides. I showed her an overhead projector made by a draftsman who peeled off letters and pasted them onto the plastic to make these slides 25 years ago. And so the, the, the webmaster had to scan them in <laughs> to put them up on the web. That's sadness. Yeah. So to, to end on a, on a positive, or not, not <laughs> a positive note, because that, that sounds bad. So let me rephrase that. To end on an, uh, an uplifting point for people, if there's someone who wants to get involved into technology, into free and open source, what advice would you give them? I would say learn about software and hardware down to the transistor level. You don't have to learn, you don't have to know the physics of how the transistor works, but you need to know that these two transistors will come together to make a flip flop. And then flip-flops to a half adder, half adders to an adder, adders to registers. You know, you put these together into a CPU. It has a clock. It has a pulse that's going to keep everything going at the same time. Because there are clockless systems that work a lot faster. Then, you know, you've got, you've got uh, cache memory. You have RAM. You have different types of, you know. And this is really non-uniform memory. And you need to think about your program when you're using this. If you learn all these things down to that level, that when somebody comes along and has something new, you can think, stare off into space and say, I can conceptualize how that works. But if you stop 
at some level, then anything that's below that is going to be a black box to you. So I don't suggest to people that they should learn assembly language to program an assembly language. If I found somebody writing assembly language code in this day and age, I would chop their hands off. However, I want people to learn assembly language so that when they compile their program and they tell the compiler to generate the code, they can look at the code and they can say, ah, I see a major slowdown here. And if I change my code or I change the optimization, then I can make it go twice as fast, three times as fast, or in one particular case, 10,000 times as fast. Because I understood how the computer worked and I understood what the compiler was generating and I understood the differences between the different types of memory and the relative speeds of them. That first job that I had that was not about writing new code. That job was taking other people's code and making it work faster. And my boss told me, if you can't make it run at least twice as fast, don't spend your time on it. And so I would take code and make it run 150 times as fast, 200 times as fast. We talked today about software bloat, how much RAM it uses and things like that. We talk about, you know, and I said, literally earlier that if you need a program to run faster, you buy a faster CPU. And I was being a little flippant about that. But in the past, performance was measured by plugging your computer into the wall and seeing how fast your program ran, seeing if it took an hour or two hours or whatever. Today, because of the speed of computers, maybe the time is down to 15 seconds and you say, well, that's okay. But if that is on a set of server systems that Google has, and there's 10,000 of them, and you can make that program run 10% faster. Now it means that Google only has to buy 9,000 servers. Instead of using like 10 gigawatts of power, they only have to use nine gigawatts of power. It's actually 20 gigawatts versus 18, because for every gigawatt you use, you have to cool it a gigawatt's worth. So you're talking about real performance now, or, Performance is measured in how long does your battery last? I used to have an application on my phone that helped me find Wi-Fi hotspots in hotels, hotspots in hotels or in airports and stuff. And when that program was running, even if I even if I didn't think it was running because it was always running in the background, my battery just go, you know, and be done. And I got rid of that program on my phone, came to life again. So we need to understand efficiency is not necessarily anymore how fast is a program run, because it may run fast enough. But what are the resources that you're using that you're taking away from somebody else, something else that could be running? So the, the, these kids, unfortunately, who say, I, I, I learned a little bit of JavaScript and I, and I create a web page, and somehow I think I'm a, a programmer, a computer programmer. I said, no, you're not. You got a good start. But this is a this is a job as a profession that you're going to be learning your whole life. And when you stop learning, you stop growing, you stop being useful, you know, just go away. And we need to get people to understand that. And likewise, we need to get people to understand that when you put that first uh, advertisement out looking for that entry level programmer, don't look for somebody that knows C and Fortran and C++ and Snowball and, 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 and Java and all these other languages because that person doesn't exist. But instead, look at somebody that knows what an algorithm is. Look at somebody that knows how the computer works 
and they can learn everything else from a book or the web, reading stuff. And this is the type of thing we have to get not only the teachers, the students, and the the people of hiring to know. Well, John, I think that's a great point to end on. I I very much appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. It's It's been a pleasure. It's been great. Thank you again. You're welcome.